Today I am going to present what I have called, I've done it before, but I think it's important for us to be reminded of what Jesus Christ underwent for us in order for our salvation to be accomplished. During this season we celebrate what we call the Passion Week. And I want to remind us once again, store up your pure minds by way of remembrance exactly what it is that Jesus Christ underwent during this week. And so in keeping with the season, I would like to give a panorama of the events of what we have now come to call the Passion Week. Referring to the seven days in the life of Jesus Christ leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. These days, this week, if you like, really cannot be called, as some call them, the last or final days of Jesus Christ on earth. Because that's not true. Because if you recall, Jesus Christ actually stayed on earth for 40 days after his resurrection. Those were the last days, not these. However, many significant events occurred during this week, we call the Passion Week. Events which climaxed in his crucifixion as the Lamb of God. And of course, which sets the stage for his glorious resurrection on the first day of the following week. And I call that day the Lord's Resurrection Day. As most of you know now, I try as much as possible not to call that day Sunday, but rather Resurrection Day or the Lord's Day, because that's what it is. Today, the Sunday prior to his death, today in the sense of what we are celebrating at this time, we call it, of course, Palm Sunday. This is due to the fact that many people at the coming of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on this day, over 2,000 years ago, threw palm branches in front of him. Now, I've always wondered why they didn't call it Code Day or Code Sunday, if you want, back then, because the Lord's Day wasn't there yet, Code Sunday, because they also threw their clothes down, the clothes before them, to greet him into Jerusalem. But anyway, Jesus made what we now call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Although when it is all said and done, it was anything than a triumphal entry. Because in effect, he was finally rejected. But at that moment, those who were there looking at it as a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the reason why it was so important, because Jerusalem represented, of course, the capital, the head of his people at that time. And Jesus is really appealing to the nation as a whole at this particular time. But Jesus waited in Bethany for the exact time to make his entrance and to present himself as Israel's Messiah. He waited because he was following a plan, a plan that was made before the foundation of the earth. And every minute in the life of Jesus Christ was planned by God. And he was waiting for the exact time to do what he was supposed to do at the time that it was determined for him to do it. And he ended at the exact time that the lamb was being selected for the upcoming Passover by the Jewish people. In other words, why this is so important is because Jesus entered the gates of Jerusalem at the very moment the sacrifice of atonement was being offered in the temple at the time. Very symbolic because he was the Lamb of God himself presenting himself to his people. 
He also entered at the exact time that was prophesied by Daniel more than 700 years earlier. He entered at the specific time that was prophesied on the very moment. Some theologians and most of the conservative theologians today have determined that that date was March the 30th, 33 AD. Now there's some people who go one way or the other, but this is one of the days that are normally seen as the time that Jesus Christ presented himself as king on the day that we now call Palm Sunday. But Jesus knew that he would not really be received as king officially. He knew that. He knew that it would not be a triumphant entry even before he reached Jerusalem. Because remember the scripture tell us that the moment Jerusalem came into view as Jesus made his way from Bethany into Jerusalem. As he saw Jerusalem, he wept and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had recognized the day of your visitation, but now your city is left to you desolate. He said that even before he got into Jerusalem because he knew that he would be rejected. He knew that they would not understand that he had come just as God said the Messiah would come, just as God said that the king would come. He came exactly as predicted and still he was rejected. He entered in the exact manner Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem in Zechariah 9.8. He came riding on a colt, the male foal of a donkey. The fact that Jesus rode in on a donkey portrayed him as a warrior king coming in peace. He was a warrior, he was a king, but the donkey represented peace, not war. And that was symbolized in his entrance on a donkey. If he had come for war, it probably would have been on a white charger, a horse, rather than a donkey. The donkey is a symbol of peace, the horse is of power and of war. But Jesus came as the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Now he's coming back again. And he's coming to the Jewish people again. But when he comes again, he will come as they had hoped he would come this time, but didn't. He will come as a warrior king. And we'll see that later on as we go through our discussion this coming week. Now, when he got into the city the people were crying out all kinds of praises two of the words were hosanna and hallelujah now hallelujah means praise the lord amen can you say hallelujah, hallelujah. that means praise the lord but they were also saying hosanna now hosanna means save us or save save so as they were coming in the crowds were greeting him riding in on a donkey as a warrior who would save them from the political dominion of the Romans. So they were actually saying, save us, save us, save us. Not spiritually, but politically. That's what they were saying. And so the Palm Sunday crowd falsely assumed that Jesus Christ would bring them political salvation. And that's why they greeted him. Many people today have a false idea of what Christ provides. They would come to Christ because their marriage is broken up or in the process of it. Or they've come to Christ, they say, because things are bad in times of the economy. They will not come to Christ to be saved from their sins. They will be 
coming to Christ to be saved from their problems and the difficulties that they brought upon themselves. There's no use coming to Christ for salvation in those in that way. Now, yes, sometimes he does use these things to bring us to himself, but that's not the major reason. These people had a wrong idea of why Jesus Christ was coming as king. Many people have the same idea about Jesus Christ, a mistaken idea. They think that Jesus Christ has come to make everything good for them. And so when things get tough, they get away from Jesus Christ. He doesn't come to make everything easy for you. He came to save you from your sins. And Jesus presented himself both as the final Passover lamb and the Messiah. But he was officially rejected from both perspectives by the nation of Israel. Now this is the event we are celebrating today that we call Palm Sunday. But the people missed the idea that Jesus was presenting himself as the Lamb of God or that he came as a Prince of Peace. So they were rejoicing for the wrong reasons. That's possible. That's why right doctrine is so important for a believer. Sometimes we could believe something that is erroneous and rejoice in the error. That's why it's important for us to understand Scripture. These people should have understood it because it was all recorded in their Bible for them. But yet they misunderstood because they did not study properly. But on Monday now, Monday following the entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus confirmed Israel's rejection on this day Monday. He returned to Jerusalem from Bethany on Monday. And along the way, he cursed a fig tree. That should have been bearing fruit, but did not. By the next day, Tuesday, it had withered and died. This was a picture of Israel's being set apart by God because of their unbelief, their disobedience, and their rejection of Jesus Christ. This is all told in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 23. Now the text makes a comment. It says in verse 13, And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, notice that, in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now some people pick on that and they said, now Jesus was sort of a mean person because this tree was not supposed to bear figs. So why did he curse it? He didn't find any on it. Because you see, again, you have to read the text. You notice it said about the leaves. Let me read you something that one of my professors in Dallas Theological Seminary said to explain this, and I quote from him now, because this is a far-reaching event here in the life of Jesus, because he's demonstrating symbolically now that the people of Israel, his people, now if this has happened in our time, we would call them the church, all right? I want you to see how significant this is. This was God's people on earth. There was no church. This was God's people on earth. And they had turned away from him. Now he was in the process of turning away from them because of their sin and disobedience. God's grace comes to an end sometimes, you know. Sometimes you forget that. And so this is an important event. And so he's using this cursing of the fig tree as a demonstration, as a symbol that he was about to reject Israel. Why? Because Israel, he expected more from Israel. He expected that they would be bringing forth fruit, but they didn't. And this cursing of fig tree demonstrated one of the most tremendous times in the history of Israel when God turned away from them. 
and the Messiah turned away from them. But how do you understand this text then? If it says that he cursed a tree in a season when there was supposed to be no figs for not bringing the fig outward. Here is what Dr. Walford says, and I quote him. The time of year was Passover, the middle of the month of Nisan, which is April. In Palestine, fig trees produce crops of small edible buds in March, followed by the appearance of large green leaves in early April. You notice the text says it was in leaves? That's what they were talking about here. This early green fruit or buds was common food for local peasants. So it's supposed to be food even before the figs. An absence of these buds, despite the tree's green foliage, promising their presence indicated it would bear no fruit that year. That's why Jesus cursed it. Because it should have been producing even these buds, it wasn't. And so he cursed it. Because that which was expected to come forth did not. And Israel was rejected. Think about your own life. What does God expect of you? What does Jesus expect of you? Are you producing it as a believer? He expects Christ-likeness, doesn't he? Holiness of life, absence of greed, no backbiting and bickering and causing division. All of those things he expects of his people. Is he getting it? Those of you who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, what does he expect of you? He expects for you to believe in his Son. This is the will of God, that you believe in him and his Son whom he has sent. If he had to stop now, withholding his grace, where would you fall? On this side, with his peace? Or on this side, with his judgment? He rejected Israel because they did not do what he had expected them to do what he had done, he had hoped for them to do. Now, on the same Monday now, he also runs the money changes out of the temple for a second time. He did it earlier, the beginning of his ministry, three years before. He does it again at the end of his ministry. So that's an important thing. At the beginning of his ministry, he cleansed the temple. He said, you've got too many people here trying to make money in the church. Before he is killed, he goes back into it, and he does the same thing. He says, there's too many people in this church. Now, I'm using this church in a modern time. It's a temple back then. There's too many people in here trying to make money. And in the process, they're preventing God from being worshipped the way he should be. This is important now. Jesus hates people going after filthy lucre, using the ministry to make money for personal gain. It is possible for us to become so economy-minded by selling books and tapes and all these other kinds of things, we can actually prevent people from worshiping Jesus Christ. Greed takes the place of genuine worship. And so, what does it become? The economical drive for money? It becomes idolatry because greed is idolatry. And these people were being charged by Jesus Christ from preventing people from worshiping God. Is that happening today? You know, when I was going over this, I said to myself, if Jesus would come into our churches today, he'd probably drive every one out of the churches. He'd probably close down the TV 
of all these people sending a donation, you know, before you can get a book. They're selling the book, but they want you to sell them the donation. See, normally when you get a donation, you don't get anything back. To me, it's hypocrisy. Really, it is. You have to pay for it. It's not a donation. Oh, we do that so we can get around the taxes. It's still wrong as far as I'm concerned. You're paying for it. You're not donating to carry on a ministry. Because if you don't donate, you don't get anything. He said, that's kind of harsh. Filthy lucre. That's why even for preachers to become an elder, to become a pastor, we cannot be concerned about filthy lucre. Jesus Christ went into the temple right at the beginning of his ministry and right at the end because he wanted nothing to prevent God's people from being worshipped the way they should be worshipped and the way they should be. Now he goes on. Because you see, his attitude towards false, wicked, mere, formalistic worship is something that he does not like. He does not like hypocrisy. No one should be paid to have access to worship God. No one should have to pay anything to worship God. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid it all. That's Monday. Next day, Tuesday. This is quite a day. This was a busy day for Jesus Christ. Probably the most busy other than Friday. On this day, on Tuesday, his authority is challenged by all of his enemies. The chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the everybody comes at him on this day. The Herodians, all of them come at him on this particular day. But Jesus routes them all. He puts them in the place, as it were. He authenticates his authority and he denounces them eight times in the one passage, the passage of scripture. He continues and he calls them some real bad names. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's eight times. And you know who he's saying it to? Those who claim to be his people, the priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. In other words, today we'd say be, uh, I'm just using this description because it's the only one I could get to show generally. It will be the Christian council, the leaders, the pastors, the prophets, the apostles. He's looking at these people who are trying to make money in the church. Who's preventing people from worshiping God that the way they should be worshipped. And he says to them, whoa, 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 whoa. He calls them hypocrites. This is Jesus Christ now. He calls them some real bad names. Scribes. Pharisees. Hypocrites. 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 You blind guides. He goes on. He calls them snakes. He calls them a stinking grave. That's what he calls them. He calls them dirty dishes. That's what he does. Who are these people? The leaders of the religion of his day. Jesus condemned them all. Because he hates hypocrites. If you go to the scriptures, you'll find that the people that really angered Jesus and ticked him off, it was hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? Those who tithe, those who pray, those who fast, those who read the Bible. Hypocrites! Because they were doing all of these things for themselves and just to make a show. Hypocrites! Hypocrites are not those people who are doing all the sins. 
The only place that religious hypocrites are found is in the church. You know that, eh? That's the only place religious hypocrites are found in the church. They claim to be something, but they live something else. Jesus condemned them. Call them snakes and vipers, graves and dirty dishes. I wonder what he would call us today. I wonder what he would call you, me. Is our worship, our motivation for serving Jesus pure? Or is it just to please somebody else or myself or what? Hypocrites, he said. That was Tuesday. I call it the day of condemning hypocrites. Then Wednesday. There was no activity at all recorded in the Bible by Jesus Christ on Wednesday. No activities are recorded. It appears that he remained in Bethany. I believe that he set aside a day of prayer and meditation, a time where he could get close to his father as he anticipates the rest of the week. He had a time of personal preparation for what was to come. I believe he spent the time with his father. There's no record of it, but that's my belief. But then Thursday comes now. Thursday evening especially. This is the Jewish Friday. So he rests in Bethany on Wednesday. Thursday evening, the Jewish Friday, the scripture says, when the hour had come, certain things put in place. First, he eats his last Passover meal with his disciples. I mentioned that this morning. And during this Passover meal, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. His disciples are there. Among them, of course, is Judas Iscariot. Jesus, I believe, reaches out one final time to Judas when he passes the morsel to him. But when Judas refuses his overtures, Jesus identifies him as the betrayer. And then he says to him, what you do, do quickly. Notice that. What you do, do quickly. Why? Because Jesus was attending to his timetable. I want you to understand that Jesus is in control. Circumstances are not guiding Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is under control. Satan isn't in control. Judas isn't under control. Jewish people are not in control. The Romans are not under control. Jesus is in control. You have to understand this as you go through the week. These things didn't happen haphazardly. God wasn't off somewhere on vacation. Jesus Christ was in control of everything going on. He was not a victim of circumstances. He was the master planner carrying out the plan of the triune God that was made from before the foundation of the earth. Jesus Christ was in control during this Passion Week, not man. You have to remember that. If you're going to see the victory and the triumph here, rather than just being a dreary time and the time of sadness and sorrow. No, God's plan was being accomplished. So after Judas leaves, the prompting of Jesus Christ to hurry up because his hour would soon come, he institutes the first Lord's Supper at the last Passover. During this time, he instructs them concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. Another comforter will come. I must go, he says, so he could come. Tells them all of this during this time. He goes through that wonderful prayer in John 17 we call the Lord's Prayer. And that's the Lord's Prayer in John 17, not the one in the Gospels. This is the time that Jesus Christ himself prays to his Father. 
And this is one of the most significant passages in the Word of God, John 17, and it was done right during the, this time of the Passion Week when Jesus Christ implemented the Lord's Supper. It talks about his closeness with the Father. It talks about his closeness with those whom he came to save. It is one of the most significant passages concerning the heart of Jesus Christ. You want to hear the heartbeat of Jesus Christ? Read and study John 17. And it all happened here on this Thursday or evening or Friday in the Jewish uh, week, Passion Week. But then he crosses the Brook of Kidron and he enters the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the prayer of the press of olives where the olives are put in a situation where big rock rolls over them and they're crushed to make oil that blesses people. That's Gethsemane. But in Gethsemane, Jesus agonizes in prayer before the Father in anticipation of being separated from him as he suffers for the sin of the world. This is a very significant time in the life of Jesus Christ. And I want you to pause for a moment and think about that. Because Jesus, like us now, is anticipating Calvary. Jesus is anticipating Calvary. He's anticipating become a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. And so alone, because he's left his disciples, because no one can experience his agony with him. Alone he struggles in agony, earnestly and desperately requesting with tears and strong crying that if possible, his father would devise another means other than the cross to save mankind. And so he pleads, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let Calvary be taken away. Yet not as I will, but as you will. But he doesn't leave it there. He goes on again. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then the third time, he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he is crying and he has much tears. And he is under emotional and psychological pain that no one can experience other than Jesus Christ in this fashion. Here's how the writer to the Hebrews describes this horrific moment in the life of Jesus Christ. He says, in the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Notice this. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Friends, listen, in this moment in Gethsemane, Jesus was experiencing some of the deepest emotional and psychological pain possible. No one experience these kinds of experiences emotionally or psychologically as Jesus Christ can. Why? Because he's the perfect man. And his pain, his pain is much greater than our pain. And so three times he asks his father and three times the silent heavens give no answer from the father. And so the matter is settled once and for all. And he says, not my will, but thine be done. Then he goes out to face the hour for which he had come into the world. His hour had come. Jesus is in control. Not man, but Jesus is in control. And so now early Friday morning arrives. 
Judas betrays him with a kiss. His disciples desert him. He is alone to face his enemies. And so he says to them, this is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. You see, even God had planned an hour for the power of darkness. He says, now is your time. It's your time. He means by this, you've won this inning. This is your inning, but I'm coming to bat. This is your inning right now, but I'm coming to bat. You better make good use of what is supposed to be done. It's now very early on Friday morning, but still before dawn. He faces an informal religious trial before the ex-high priest Ananias. He is physically accosted for the first time. A palace guard strikes him in the face. Oh, do not pass that by. That wasn't just a little... This man was a trained soldier, a man who was trained to know how to give people pain. How to inflict punishment. This was a punch that could probably broke a person's draw and distort his face. The guard hits him in the face. He's then taken before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and given a formal but illegal trial. All of the trials, six of them were illegal. Why? It's the wrong place at the wrong time. But it's still just before dawn on Friday. He begins to be mocked by his captors. If you are the Messiah, tell us who struck you. It's now just about dawn on Friday. And Peter denies Jesus Christ three times. The determined Jews then take Jesus back from the house of Caiaphas to the precincts of the temple where the charge of blasphemy is officially confirmed by the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. In other words, the judges themselves become the witnesses. The judges themselves become the witnesses. But yet judgment does not carry the death sentence under the Roman law to which they were bound. As much as they detested the Romans, the only way that they could kill Jesus was to have the capital punishment sentence passed down by the Romans. That's the only way they could execute Jesus. And so they had to go to Pilate. He is falsely accused of blasphemy by the Jews. At this point, violence against Jesus is dramatically increased. Some spit in his face, some punch him in the body, while others slap him in the face. Again, I want you to understand, these were not love taps. They were trying to hurt this man. This man was beaten so terribly that you couldn't recognize his face. Isaiah tells us that. He was completely disfigured. You didn't even know he was a man. You see, some of the pictures we have, and we'll show some more, we don't see all of them. But this, Jesus Christ was terribly abused. We would dare to say today, he was beaten to a pulp. It is at this time that Judas, in remorse, commits suicide and gives the first of ten declarations of Jesus' innocence given during this day. Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate, wishing to dissociate himself from the situation, sends them before Herod. Because Herod, the Tetrarch, is in charge of Galilee, Jesus' hometown. Pilate examines him on the basis of treason. And for the first time, he himself personally declares Jesus as an innocent man. I find no crime in him, he says. Jesus is then marked as being king for a day. But Herod too finds Jesus not guilty and declares him an innocent man. This is the third time that morning that Jesus is declared to be innocent. Pilate personally declares Jesus innocent for the second and the third time. This makes five times now in all 
that Jesus Christ has been declared to be innocent. Then Pilate's wife comes and she says the same thing. Have nothing to do with this just man. Pilate then scourges Jesus and attempts to free him by offering Barabbas to be crucified. Jesus is scourged with a steel-tipped whip with leather tongs that pierce into his back. If you've seen the movie The Passion, Mel Gibson says that Jesus Christ was whipped 78 times, twice, 40 less one. But the scriptures nowhere says that. The scriptures does not tell us anywhere how many scourgings he received. But he was scourged. And he was scourged terribly. And so added to the beating that he was gotten in the face. And all of these blows were primary to his face at this point. But now his back is being torn apart with this scourging. And then a crown of thorns, five and a half inches, say two and a half to five inches long, these thorns were. And they were put on his brow. And the man, you read another passage, says they were beating him on the head, forcing the crown of thorns into his skull. This wasn't just a joy ride for Jesus Christ. This was a terrible time physically here. Jesus Christ was physically beaten and bruised to the point of being unrecognized as a man. In fact, he himself said on the cross, I am not a man, but a worm. He wasn't talking about being weak or anything. He was talking about how he looked because of his beating. He is mocked and beaten by his soldiers. And then bleeding and barely conscious, Pilate presents him to the frenzied crowd. And he says to him, Echo homo, behold the man. And if you had seen Jesus then, he isn't as he looked here. Jesus was completely, completely unrecognizable. His face disfigured, his back bleeding. This man was a mess. And for the fourth time, Pilate personally declares that Jesus is innocent. He says, I find no crime in him, he shouts. This is the seventh time that Jesus has been declared innocent. When he presents Barabbas, whom shall I release unto you? Egged on by the scribes and Pharisees, these hypocrites, they shout, Barabbas, Barabbas. He then asks, what then shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Then some of the same crowd who on Sunday passed shouted, Hosanna and hallelujah. The same crowd shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And then they added one of the most terrifying blood chilling words ever to be spoken by a people. They said, his blood be on our hands and the hands of our children. Pilate reluctantly yields to their demands. He symbolically washes his hands of the matter and for the fifth time he personally declares the innocence of Jesus. He says, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. This is now the eighth time that Jesus Christ has been declared innocent. Eight times. Jesus is mocked and beaten by the soldiers again. As they lead him away. I want to remind you again when you read this description. Please don't just think that these soldiers are just simply tapping Jesus Christ. They are beating him. They are beating him. He is mocked and beaten by the soldiers again. As they lead him away to be crucified along the Vio Doloroso. Simon of Cyrene is forced to help Jesus carry his cross upon the hill. That led to the place of the skull called Gotha. It is now just about 9 a.m. on Friday. 
he comes to the place where he is going to be crucified for you and for me. He comes to the place where he will come become the atoning sacrifice for your sin and my sin. Look at him. He is carrying his cross for you. He's carrying his cross for me. At top Golgotha on Calvary, Jesus is spread out eagle-like on the wooden beam, and then giant spikes are cruelly and expertly hands and into his feet, being done by men who have been trained professionally to crucify people. This wasn't a haphazard thing. They knew exactly where the place to nail so no bones would be broken. They knew exactly where to place them in the feet so it will hold up the body for a certain time. They knew exactly what they were doing. And Jesus Christ has led as a lamb before the slaughter, opened not his mouth. Not in protest, but he did open his mouth. Father, forgive them. Release them from judgment at this time because they do not know what they're doing. So on the cross, Jesus refuses a narcotic-like mixture that would help to deaden the pain that he was experiencing. That's what they did at first. They gave him this narcotic-like to block out the pain. But Jesus didn't want the pain to be blocked out. He wanted to taste death in all of its fullness for every man. He wanted to taste death in all of its fullness for you and for me. So he refused the comfort that he could have been given physically. recorded in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus is doing, and what he often does, is he quotes a part of a passage and expects his disciples to know and understand the rest of the passage. It's a rabbinic technique called remez. It saves time. And there's more in Psalm 22, more that Jesus is saying, more that Jesus is fulfilling. You might want to pay attention here to the rest of what Jesus is saying from the cross.
ask, has God left him? Is Jesus suddenly alone, wondering where his father has gone? To help us understand, remember this. Jesus never, never leaves the text, not even as he gives up his life. He knows the text, he quotes the text, he lives the text. What text do you ask? The Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus knew. He has done it. That's why he cried on the cross, it is finished. But then two other times Jesus was declared innocent by those involved in his crucifixions. Once by the thief on the cross who said he has done nothing wrong. And the centurion in charge of the soldiers who crucified Jesus who said, Surely this man was the son of God. Ten times in all, Jesus was declared innocent. Ten times this is an innocent man. You say, this is incredible. How could they crucify Jesus with so many people declaring him innocent so many times? How could they condemn and crucify Jesus with so much evidence substantiating his innocence? How could they still bring a guilty verdict? You say, how can it be possible that they could do this? Well, let me ask you something, especially those of you who have never yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. What is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? How many times have you heard the gospel and you said no? Every time you did, you were declaring him guilty, guilty, not innocent, because you're rejecting him as your Savior. How many times have you come to the conclusion that Jesus did die for the sins of the world, but yet you've rejected him as your savior on a personal basis? Each time you have rejected Christ, you have found him guilty in spite of the evidence. And like the people of Jesus' day, his blood is now on your hands, and perhaps also on the hands of your children. The writer of the book of Hebrews said that for his hearers to know about Christ as they did and then turn their backs on him was to trample Jesus underfoot, to trample the blood of Christ underfoot, he says. Isn't this what you're doing? Every time you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, trampling underfoot his blood, saying it really doesn't matter to me? And so as we contemplate Good Friday now, I ask you this question today. Did Jesus Christ die for you or not? Not did he die for the world, but did he die for you or not? When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what happened, he worshipped God and said, surely this man was innocent. Jesus is arrested in the garden. He is betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of his own disciples. Surely this man was innocent, he said. Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin. 
Many false witnesses come forward. They spit in his face and strike him with their fists. They say, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Surely this man was innocent. Jesus stands trial before Pilate. The crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him. One week earlier, they shouted, Hosanna in the highest. Surely this man was innocent. Jesus is taken and flogged. The whip is embedded with pieces of bone and lead. Often the victims of Roman floggings did not survive. Surely this man was innocent. The soldiers mocked Jesus. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. Then they strike him and spit on him. Surely this man was innocent. Jesus is crucified. Surely this man was innocent. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so my friends, the same question Pilate asked more than 2,010 years ago is being asked today once more. Only thing this time, it is the Holy Spirit who's asking you the question. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Paul said that the gospel is like an aroma of death to some, an aroma of life to others. In other words, death to those who reject Christ and life to those who accept him. I ask you, what is the gospel to you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? What is your verdict concerning Christ? Will you join the crowd 2,010 more years ago during that first Passion Week and say, away with him, away with him. We'll have nothing to do with this man. We will not have this man rule over us. Will that be your position today? Or will you open your heart, your will and your life to Jesus Christ who was crucified for you? What is your verdict? What will you do with Christ? He died for you. Listen once more. He died for you. He was hated. He was rejected. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was tortured. He was pierced. He was broken. He was cursed.
He was killed. For you and for me. But that was Friday. He is risen. First Lord's Day. He is King. He's coming again. And He's coming again for you and for me. The question then to you is, are you ready? What then will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Let me ask you again, what is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? Let me ask you again, what will you do with Christ? My friend, Jesus is standing in Pilate's Hall again, as the song says. He's standing at the door of your life. Will you still find some fault in him? Or will you let him in and own him as your king? What will your answer be? Please bow with me. I give you a moment now to answer that question. Take a few moments of quiet reflection. It could be the most important time in your life. You've taken this time to go through the Passion Week because we believe it is important, because we believe it focuses upon what Jesus Christ really experienced for you and for me. Today, if you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior, have you done it this morning? Will you do it right now? Simply acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for you and he was raised again for your justification. And that right now, today, you're going to place your faith in him. Will you do that right now in the quietness of your heart? Simply say something like this. God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for me. And I believe that you raised him from the dead to validate the fact that you'd accepted his death on my behalf. And so right now, this moment, I trust him as my savior. Now, if you've said that, would you like more help in saying that? Father, we thank you for your word again that says it will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it forth. And all of God's people said, amen. <laughs>